Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today it's a real pleasure to have the author of Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis, Robert Putnam. Uh, Robert Putnam is a name that's known by all. His latest book is out and it's getting a lot of coverage. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Robert a couple of weeks ago. Welcome back to the podcast. It's my real pleasure to have somebody that I have read so much about and a pleasure now to meet and talk to Robert Putnam. Uh, Robert Putnam, as many of you know, is the Peter and Isabel Malkin Professor of Public Policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He has written 14 books, including Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, and more recently, Better Together, Restoring the American Community. Your newest book, which is what we're going to be talking about today, is Our Kids, the American Dream in Crisis that was published this year by Simon & Schuster, Robert Putnam, Welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here. It's such a pleasure for me to have read the book because it dips into so many things that I'm interested in. And I also suspect that people in lots of the subfields of political science are interested in this sort of a big book in terms of the array of topics that you talk about. But um, whereas in much of your previous writing, you write mainly about politics and political participation, education moves to the center of this book. So much so that you use it as is really a placeholder for social class. Mm-hmm. So as we start talking about this book, I wonder if you can kind of lead us into why education is so important for these issues of class and class mobility. Why is it the measure that you use and come back to again and again and again and not other measures? Sure. Well, that's a very good question. Um, the larger frame for the book is that um, the idea that all kids in America should get more or less a fair start in life. That is, that we all have a, depending upon our native God-given talents and our energy level, our our grit and determination, we ought to all have an equal chance of of, um, being successful in life. It it all goes back to the founding. Uh, um, All men are created equal. That's the basic premise of of the American experiment. And gradually, over the over the centuries, we've worked out exactly what that means. Um, all men didn't re- originally mean all all men; it meant all white men, and didn't originally include women, and so on. But the basic core principle of American um, social development over the years has been to spell out what it means that everybody ought to have a fair chance. And my argument in the book is that over the last thirty or forty years, a variety of factors have dramatically undermined the reality of equal opportunity in America so that um, poor kids have much less chance than rich kids do now. The gap, what I call the opportunity gap between what's open to kids coming from well-educated backgrounds from their, their parents in the upper, upper third of American society those kids, like my own grandchildren, they have a much better chance than they used to, and kids coming from the lower third of American society, roughly speaking, people who didn't get past high school, that is, their parents didn't get past high school, have had sharply deteriorating chances and opportunities and um, investment in them by their parents and the rest of us over the last um, over the last 30 years, and I think that's leading, to, leading us a little bit more toward a caste society. Now, you're right that this is a somewhat different caste society in that the marker is education, and the reason that I use I use education as my main marker for social class 
for several reasons. Uh, the first is class is increasingly the sorry education is increasingly the dominant um, factor in social standing. It it is the most increasingly the most powerful determinant both of social status and of prestige and of of income. So it makes sense, I think, to focus. And it's, it, it is convenient that the American population is roughly speaking divided into thirds, the upper third college educated, with college degrees I mean, the lower third not past high school, and the middle third basically something more than high school but not a college degree. The other reason, a more methodological reason of interest to, to social scientists is that um, measures of income, of family income, are notoriously very, very noisy. There's a, in any survey, including those done by the, by the Census Bureau, but any survey, the amount of missing data in, in uh, measures of income is extremely high. And it's especially problematic when you're asking kids about their parents' income. Kids have very little idea of what their parents' income really is. And therefore, when we want to talk to kids and find out, you know, what their class background is, it's much easier for us to ask them what kind of education did your parents have than it is to ask them what was your family's uh, income. So that methodological, and this is the, the third methodological reason is that for many of the, of the charts in the book, the, the, the book is full, as you know, full of these what we call scissors charts in which we examine over time this growing gap between rich kids and poor kids. In order to be able to construct methodologically a, a, a graph over time, you have to find surveys that have asked some question repeatedly over time, like how much time does parent, do parents spend reading to their kids, for example? There are surveys of that over time. But few of those good over time surveys, sur- surveys that you need for the, to provide the data ask about income. Most of them ask about education. So for those methodological reasons as well as a substantive reason, education seemed to us the, the right metric for measuring class. Although we've actually done as much as we can of the research, we've replicated as much as we, can, as we can of the research using measures of income or more complicated measures of social standing, and nothing that I'm aware of in the book would be changed if we had used some other measure of social standing, we, we, of, of social class. We just would have had less, much less data and much less reliable data to work with because we, we would have been relying on income. Right. And, um, much of what the book is about is, is classic social science, but we also take some trips with you, and one of the trips we take is back to Port Clinton, Ohio. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about Port Clinton, Ohio, the place that you grew up, impressionistically, sure. what it was like when you grew up, right. and, and what we might see today that, that would illustrate this scissor graph that you describe right. in several places. So what would it have looked like if we were there when you were growing up, and what does it look like now? Um, let me say as a social scientist that most of my work actually has been counting, um, not, not, not doing stories. But this is a book that I wanted to reach beyond the ac- academy. I wanted to reach out to ordinary citizens, and most of them, unlike most of us, most of us who are in the profession, most of them learn more from stories than they do from data or multiple regressions or whatever. That's why... I have a lot more stories in the book of people, individual kids, rich and poor. And that's especially why I begin with Port Clinton, because I want to show what the data show, but I want to show it in a real place, mm-hmm. this deterioration of, of, the, of the state of community in America and most of all, the polarization, class polarization of America. And you could imagine trying to describe that in Manhattan or in, in L.A. County or some other place, and we do 
in the end talk about those sorts of places too. But you can see it in a tiny little town. My town had 5,000 people. When I was growing up, uh, it was an ordinary town. Um, in many respects, it was an ordinary town. It, it was mostly white. So in that respect, it was not reflective of all of America. But in other terms, economic and class terms, it was like the rest of America. There were no very rich people in town, no very poor people in town. The rich kids in town made every effort to hide the fact that they were rich. And the poor kids turned out to have, we know now after the fact, the poor kids in the graduating class of 1959, my classmates and I, experienced extraordinary upward mobility. Three quarters of us made it further up the educational ladder than our, three quarters than, than our parents had. Most of us did better than our parents had done economically. Um, and we know this because I did a, not just a sample survey, but interviewed exhaustively all the surviving members of my graduating class. And we found out where they ended up. And there was very little, very little effect of parental background on how well people did. There was a little bit of an effect, but it was, it was tiny. Most of what, and it was not driven by things like um, how much money the parents had. It had to do more with how much emphasis the parents, how much stress the parents put on education. And if parents stressed education, or one of my classmates got you know, encouragement to go to college from somebody else, a, a minister or a, an employer or whatever, any of my classmates who say that they were encouraged to go to, high school, to college did. All of, literally all of them, those who had got some encouragement to college from their parents or from the community, did. And when I left high school and, and graduated and went off to went off to um, to a small college called Swarthmore, and then eventually ended up at Harvard, there were other kids in my class who didn't. They had also good jobs, well-paying jobs, working in the local factories or or starting small businesses or whatever. But after that, after our generation, the class of 1959, moved onto the stage. Suddenly, the escalator suddenly stopped. And so, although that we had a huge, we were much more, made much more advance than our parents did, our kids, on average, made no advance beyond us. Partly that's because, and this is more of the story of Port Clinton, um, about a decade after I left Port Clinton, uh, as we entered the 70s, Port Clinton was hit by the general Rust Belt phenomenon. So, all the local factories closed. You can, If you go to Port Clinton now, you see these big ruined factories with, with um, barbed wire and EPA notices on them. Um, and so, whereas my kids, benefiting simply from the fact that their father, me, and mother, my wife, were well-educated, they also, they did well, they went off to Harvard, they had, they had great, wonderful grandchildren, I'll show you the pictures mm -hmm. of my grandchildren, all of them are doing just fine, they're going off to, themselves going off to college now. But meanwhile, people who were in my class and just like me, but who didn't go to college, but instead got a good, better paying job, actually, than an assistant professor, got a better paying job working in the local plants, their kids, rather than ending up as my kids did in great professional jobs, their kids never had a steady job. That next generation back in Port Clinton suffered enormous high rates of unemployment and then gradually very high rates of family instability. And so in the book, we describe particular kids who's, who are the, the equivalent of my grandchildren, but whose parents got caught in that trap. And those kids are leading unbelievable, they're living in a different universe from my kids. They're, they're not going, 
they're not going to college. They don't have good jobs. Their their personal relationships are in turmoil. There's high levels of drug abuse and high levels of of births outside wedlock and high levels of child abuse. And the only difference between those kids and my grandchildren, they're, they're all grandchildren in Port Clinton, but the only difference is they chose the wrong parents. They chose parents who didn't go to college. And when my kids were choosing parents, they, fortunately for them, chose well-educated parents. They chose, and then their grandchildren chose great-grandparents. Grand, great and what that means is increasingly in Port Clinton today, how well you do in life depends upon your family background more than your own skills or talent or energy. The final reason why Port Clinton seemed like a good place to begin the story is that although most of Port Clinton suffered this catastrophic collapse economically, and therefore most of Port Clinton, the people in Port Clinton I knew were all devastated by unemployment and high rates of poverty and so on. Port Clinton has a beautiful location on the shore of Lake Erie, and along that shoreline, there's effectively one big gated community that is 20 miles long and about 150 yards deep, where there are big mansions, I mean huge mansions, million-dollar mansions, and the families there are like living in, in a different universe. And so if you go down East Harbor Road from the center of Port Clinton along the coast, if you look to your left, so you're looking at the lake shore. On that census tract, on the left-hand side of East Harbor Road, this child poverty rate is virtually zero. No poor kids in the whole census tract. But if you look to the right-hand side of the road, the, sense, the child poverty rate in that census tract is 50%. That, in just this tiny little town, it's like looking at a tiny drop of water and seeing the way that the whole country has changed. We've become much more polarized economically, and the chances respectively, the kids on the shore side or on the, on the, you know, the Port Clinton side of that road, the, the ch- their chances are enormously different. So if you go to the Port Clinton High School parking lot today, according to the, the school administrators, you can see parked next to each other BMW convertibles, whose kids bought, whose parents, parents bought that for the parents along the shoreline, bought those nice cars for their kids parked right next door to Jalopy, a kind of a beat-up old car in which some kid lives. Mm -hmm. And that juxtaposition of great wealth and great poverty and great great disparity in opportunity is true in Portland. It's true across America, but I thought it might be easier to begin to see the larger picture if you looked at this one little town. But this isn't just about the Rust Belt. No, it is not just about the Midwest. So let's move to California. Right. And, and I, I wonder, because you talk about California in the book, and it's, it's sort of central to the education piece, I wonder if we can move to Orange County. Right. This place that, if you're, if you're not from California, has a certain meaning. And, and I think you suggest that its, it's reality is very different Correct. than the meaning we have all ascribed to it. Right. So let's talk about it, Orange County in sure. the context of ethnicity and also in the context of schooling. So yep. how, does, how does Orange County either change or add to the story that you begin in, in Port Clinton? Right. A, a really good question. I'm glad you asked that question. And, and as you know, uh, we not only go from Port Clinton to Orange County, but we also do Bend, Oregon, and Duluth, Minnesota, and Austin, Texas, Atlanta. and Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And Because this is not a Rust Belt story, yeah. exactly as you say. Orange County is the home of Botox. And, and it has these beautiful shoreline with uh, you know, multimillion-dollar homes. 
um, and we think of it politically, we think of it as a very conservative place, but actually um, Orange County is the um, Ellis Island of America today. It has enormous, has had an enormous increase in immigration um, so that now almost half of the homes in Orange County are homes in which the native language is not English. Most people in Orange County at home don't speak English. They speak, you know, Cambodian or, 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 or Chinese or, 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 or Spanish a lot, mm-hmm. of course. And within the immigrant community, there are enormous differences of wealth and, and prosperity. So and we begin by looking in, in, in looking at Orange County, we look at two families. Both of them are second generation um, Mexican-American immigrants. One of the two families did pretty well, and they're now living in one of the nicest parts of Orange County. Um, uh, and their kids go to one of the best high schools in America. Um, but the other family that we talk about is, is, um, lives only about 10 or 15 minutes drive away from the first family. Uh, they live in Santa Ana, which is one of the poorest and most devastated cities in America. They go to Santa Ana high school, which is one of the worst high schools in all of California. So what we, in that pairing, what we're looking at is, what does it mean for two people, two sets of kids, both Latina, both second generation American, Latin, Latino Americans, both living in Orange County, um, but one of them living in one of the richest and best, um, most highly educated school districts in America and or school areas in America. They're all the same school district, actually, but the, this is an area where the school draws on very well-educated parents and kids and the other living in, frankly, one of the worst school districts in the country. And when we look at the at the lives of these kids in these two different school systems, it's two different high schools, um, they're extraordinarily different. The kids from the upper class family going to the this going to this very uh, exceptionally good high school, they have as many AP courses as you can imagine. I mean, dozens, dozens, of eight, dozens and dozens of AP courses, and scores of different kinds of of, of extracurricular activities and. Um, Almost all the kids end up going to college or some. I mean, just amazing. There's a huge peer pressure in this school um, for kids to do well in school and lots of resources to support that. Meanwhile, the kids going to this high school in Santa Ana are scared to death to go to school because there are shootings and knifings on this high school campus all the time. The, the family we interviewed had seen somebody killed in school. And, and one of the young women from the family that we interviewed had been threatened with murder in a classroom. And their, the classroom teachers, as they describe them, are incredibly bored. They're time servers. They just want to get out. The teachers just want to get out of school at the end of the day with their lives. And the kids are constantly meeting discouragement. They're not allowed into extracurricular activities. And, and one of them actually, both of them in the end, are, are eased out of the high school. One never finishes high school. One is sent to a special um, sort of high school in which she suddenly finds somebody to care about her and she does, she finishes high school. Those high schools are very different as a, as a place to experience learning, just unbelievably different. One in which you're surrounded by a ton of opportunities to learn things and one in which you're surrounded by threats, physical threats. Mm-hmm. But when we look, if you look at the schools statistically, they look almost identical. The student-faculty ratio is the same in the two schools. The dollars being spent 
per student are the same, exactly the same in the two schools. The number of counselors, guidance count or counselors, I guess I would say, mm-hmm. per student is the same in the two schools. They're about the same size. Statistically, they look identical until you start looking at the outcomes, and the outcomes are such that one of these schools is, you know, most kids end up going to college, and most kids get really high SAT scores, and the other kid, the other school, very few kids go to go to college, and the and the SAT scores of those few who take the SAT scores are among the lowest in California. Why are these schools so different in their outputs, even though on paper they're both getting the same amount of money, they have the same student-teacher ratios and so on? And the answer is, and this is more generally true mm-hmm. of schooling in America, I'm using this as an example of the more general point I'm trying to make. As we look at the data for this growing opportunity gap between rich kids and poor kids, Schools as institutions, schools within their four walls, did very little to cause that. This is not a problem caused by schools. But it's a, it's a problem where the site of the problem, the most visible place that you can see the problem, is in schools because these kids, when they go to school, it's as if they have backpacks on. And when the rich kids go to school, they bring with them their parents' money, their parents' aspirations, their parents' um, Attendance at school, they they bring, and each of them is bringing. You know, everybody's bringing a lot of support from the tiger moms and dads in the background, and so everybody in their school is benefiting from the fact that they're all bringing in their backpack things that support learning. In the other school, what the kids are bringing in their backpack is gang violence and depression at home and utter instability in the lives of these kids. Both the good, the things that at the good school. I mean, in the higher upper income school, the kids are bringing, they affect all the kids in school. Even if a low income person happened to be in the school, they would benefit from all those resources that the other kids are bringing to the school. And similarly, even a kid who was actually bright and came from a, you know, a, a nice, responsive, encouraging family, their learning opportunities are radically diminished by the things that all the other kids are bringing in their backpacks to school. That is the gang violence and the, and the depression and the lack of the cynicism and so on. So the rest of the chapter on education tries to spell out the, the quantitative evidence for what I've just said, but the Orange County case that we looked at, these comparing these two families, helps to make real why that is the case, that schools are, though not themselves in themselves the cause of these problems, a very important site for the problem. This is, is clearly a grim portrait of the world that we live in, and, and the illustrations of it take I think the facts that many of us have known about and makes it very real. And mm-hmm. I think it's one of the, the, the major contributions of the book. So what can we do? Um, in the interest of time, we can't go through all of the recommendations sure. you make. But is there one um, that sticks out to you as either particularly novel or particularly feasible that, um, that you might sort of end and end our conversation so that we sure. don't end on a grim note. We end on with some possibilities. No, on the contrary, I'm actually pretty optimistic, but I, that optimism comes not from any particular solution to any, to any particular policy proposal. I'm happy to go through that list mm-hmm. or readers, people who are listening mm-hmm. who want to then read can look at the list. I would say my optimism rests rather on a somewhat larger frame. Mm-hmm. It's the frame of how Americans do social reform because we're in a period now in American politics especially, where it seems impossible that anything could get done, any policy proposal. And I think the most, the biggest obstacle to solving the opportunity gap is not that we can't find the right technical fix to it. It's that we can't rally the political will necessary 
to make changes at all levels, local levels, state levels, national levels, even in our, you know, in the non-political parts of our, our lives, the local communities. And I, for inspiration, go back to an earlier period in American political history, the, the um, progressive era, in which there were progressive era was a lot like the era we're living in now. That is, this was the Gilded Age, great gap between rich and poor, people living in hovels and in, 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 in unbelievably distressed conditions in the slums of New York or Chicago or, or, or Pittsburgh or elsewhere around the country. And it was a period in which, because of what was called social Darwinism, the reigning ideology was let everybody, every man for himself, it's going to be worse if we try to, if we try to help these poor kids. Um, but then in a very short period of time, historically speaking, 10 or 15 years, what America did was to change its mind about these poor kids and came to believe that we all had a stake in the in having equal opportunity for all poor kids. We had a stake because, first of all, if we didn't help them, they were going to be a big burden on our economy. And that's true today, too. The poor kids we talk about in our book are going to cost my grandchildren are going to pay a huge amount in taxes and in crime and so on if we don't help these kids. So it's economically then and now it was made sense to help these kids. Politically then and now it made sense to try to bring everybody along because that's our democracy rests on equality among citizens and that's anything but what we're heading toward now. But finally, in that period, people came to believe that we just ought to do this. It was a moral imperative. It goes back to the fundamental beliefs of our country and of many of the religions that are, that are practiced in our country. Let me go back to Port Clinton for a moment because it, it, it captures, I think, the issue. When I was growing up in Port Clinton and my parents talked about doing things for our kids here in town, like they wanted, we had to pay higher tax. Well, let's pay some higher taxes so our kids have access to a swimming pool. Or let's, let's you know, raise a little bit more money so we can have a French department or a French club in the high school. When they talked about that and used the expression, our kids, they did not mean my sister and me. They meant all the kids in town. And they kept doing that when my sister and I were long gone because they were worried about all those kids in town by the phrase, our kids. But over the course of the last 20 or 30 years in America, our sense of we has shriveled. If you hear echoes here of the book Bowling Alone, that's not accidental. Our sense of our responsibilities and our connections even with other people in the society have shriveled. So now when people use the term, our kids, I got to worry about my, our kids, they mean my biological kids. And the poor kids in Port Clinton, nobody in Port Clinton now thinks of them as one of our kids. The general attitude is, well, she's somebody else's kid. Let them worry about her. And so that overcoming that radical individualism, radical self-focus of our culture and our politics, our politics follows from that, that, you know, this kind of in highly individualistic libertarian view that there's no role for the community to helping kids, that's the biggest obstacle, I think. And if I have hope, it's that the hope is that by calling attention to these gaps and by saying to people, look, this is not what America is about. My hope is I can help with many other people to raise enough consciousness in America of the fact that even those of us on the upside of this gap have an interest, a moral but also a material interest in the fate of these kids on the bottom side of the opportunity gap. And I think if the politics changed, and I have some hope that it may be changing, I think there's some hope that this year 
in this coming presidential election, this issue of equality of opportunity and social mobility will actually be one of the top issues debated. No doubt there'll be debates about it. I mean, no doubt people have different ideas about how you fix it. And some, some people will like my ideas and other people won't like my ideas. That is not what matters to me. What matters to me is we focus on this issue. In the progressive era, a lot of things mattered. A lot of grass, hard grassroots organizing mattered, and we have to go be about that task in America today. But also, cultural arguments have said to people, look, look at the way these people are living. One of the most important books in that area was called How the Other Half Lives. Mm-hmm. It was a book designed to tell people on the Upper East Side and the Upper West Side of New York what it was like living down in the Bowery. Mm-hmm. And why did that book have an impact? Because it essentially held a mirror and said, is this a society you want to live in? Do you want to live in a society in which there are large numbers of your fellow citizens only a few miles from you living in this kind of degradation? I don't want to say that that book or my book alone is going to change the conversation. But I do think we we have in the past in America successfully overcome periods of, of self-absorption like the one we're in now. We have overcome periods of great inequality. And I think there's no reason we couldn't do it again. Yeah, and, and what you what you just said reflects both your previous writing and also what the president had to say in Selma just yesterday. He yeah. reflected quite um, frequently on the, the idea of we and, and how we has disappeared from the conversation. Um, your book, uh, Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis, uh, that comes out uh, tomorrow, uh, We uh, given the day that we're taping, this will be out in a couple of weeks. Um, it's just very interesting. Thank you very much for coming in and talking about the book. Thank you for the book. I hope people go out and read the book um, and, um, and and enjoy what it has to say and, and take seriously some of the, these themes that you've just uh, helped us to understand. So thank you very much for Thanks your time for your today. really good questions. I appreciate that, and I enjoyed the conversation. Our pleasure. 